and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, At an acceptable time I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And for the gospel. If you'd like to follow the reading, it can be found on page 1053 in the Church Bibles. And it's Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. 
This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for those two readings for us. Um, At the start of this year of mission, um, I've got two motivations for you and one encouragement. It's a two-in-one sermon this morning for you. I'd be really grateful if you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we dig into this text a little bit more. This morning we're back in time. We're in ancient Greece. We're at St. Jude's Church in Corinth. And it's a church with a problem. Actually, they're in crisis. It's a church who are hanging off a cliff. They're at the fingernail stage. They're about to lose grip. It's a church who's on the edge of abandoning the gospel and falling away. Why? Well, because some super apostles have crept in. Super apostles who look amazing on the outside, but actually they've lulled the church to sleep. They've kind of lulled them into a sleepy Christianity that's too concerned with itself at the expense of looking outwards to others. You see, the church there had become a museum for the saints rather than a hospital for sinners. You see, these super apostles, they'd nailed their fine-sounding arguments, their shiny Sunday speeches for their sermon looks really good, on the outside, but Paul's quick to point out, actually, it's smoke and mirrors. Paul, what does fake ministry look like? Well, it produces, verse 12 of our reading, people that take pride in what's seen. Do we see that at the end of verse 12? Rather than what's in the heart. It's ministry that cares more about looking good than speaking the truth. Its ministry focused on the here and now and wants its praise and recognition and respect now, but its ministers do little to prepare the people for the day of judgment which is to come. And so for three chapters, Paul's been giving them reasons to boast about real ministry and authentic gospel ministers and not these super shiny apostles. So for three chapters, he's been giving reasons. Chapter 5, verse 12, uh, from the start, it says, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. Literally, we're giving you cause. We're giving you reasons to boast about us so that you can answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. Paul, tell us your reasons. Uh, What does the real deal look like? Well, it's ministers, chapter 3, verse 4, who place their confidence in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, and verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it's ministers whose competence doesn't come from themselves, but it comes from God, and it relies on God's mercy. Chapter 3, verse 11, and verse 18, it's ministry whose glory increases and lasts. Chapter 4, verse 2, it's ministry that doesn't use deception. It doesn't dilute the word of God, but it sets forth the truth plainly, as we were thinking about last week. In short, it's ministry that's going to do you good when you meet Jesus on that last day. That's the real deal. 
So do you see the issue uh, here? There's a danger in their church and in our church to think, if only our ministers were just a little bit cooler. If only they, their kind of dress sense was just that little bit better. Uh, if only they were a little bit more intellectually savvy. And if only they just kind of gave their message in a kind of better package, a more palatable message, then that would grow the church and make it more attractive. I wonder if you ever feel like that. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, Paul says, he came with a foolish message about the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Paul didn't come with eloquence of speech or superior wisdom. He knew nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And to him, he says, that's enough. That's the real deal. He came in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Outwardly, I don't think the Apostle Paul could compete with these super apostles. And because of that, St. Jude's Corinth, they've kind of taken their pom-poms and they're no longer cheerleading for the Apostle Paul. They've kind of put them down. And this church that Paul's speaking to, it's not a new church. It's a church that had been going for some time. And it was some time ago that they'd heard the gospel message. And it's to them then that Paul says, verse 20 and verse 21. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Stop being enemies with God and be reconciled, be made friends. Paul said, don't, don't be duped. All that glitters is not necessarily gold. Come back, be reconciled. Stop being enemies. Uh, they're losing their grip. They're at the fingernail stage, chapter 6, verse 1. Paul urges them as God's fellow workers, we urge you, not to receive God's grace in vain. That's the point. What does St. Jude's Church Corinth and St. Jude's Church South Sea need today? Ministry, verse 15, that's centered on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for all and was raised again uh, from death. That's what's going to do us good on the last day. So I've got two points. Real ministry has real motives. And my second point, real ministry brings real change. Well, let's jump into this. The first motive comes in verse 11. Uh, Paul says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men or people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. That word fear is the word phobos uh, from the Greek, where we get the word phobia. So has anyone seen that horrible film, Arachnophobia, with these kind of man-killing spiders? It's an awful film. But the word kind of phobos carries with it this idea. It's more than just being scared of something. There's a, there's a reverence, there's an awe of the thing that terrifies you. So if I woke up this morning with a big fat tarantula with its hairy legs crawling across my face, I would be afraid. But there'd be a reverence for this thing as well. I wouldn't just want to slap it on my face because it could bite me and it could cause some kind of inflammatory response and I, I'd kind of swell up and it would be awful. Um, there's a right fear. And so what's this fear of the Lord that Paul knows? Verse, verse 11 and verse 10 are tied together with that since then or therefore. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive what's due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Real ministry, real motives. Here's our first motive from Paul. At the end of your life and mine, there's a doorway that we're all going to pass through. A doorway where the Lord Jesus Christ is set on his throne. Where you and I and our neighbours and our colleagues and the people that we know are going to be confronted with the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the book of your life and the book of my life is going to be opened. And everything we've ever thought, said and done is recorded in our book. And to know this, to understand this, uh, in the first instance creates this recognition in us that we've got to get right with God. We've got to be right with God. And from that place, it creates a deep motive in the heart, an awe, a reverence for the one enthroned, the Lord and Savior. The fear of the Lord is an inward thing. We become convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. Do we see it's a powerful motive to live godly and upright lives, which pushes Paul outwards to do what? Verse 11, to persuade people to know the Lord. Well, second motive that Paul speaks, a lot, speaks of here, which must go with this first one. In fact, they're so closely connected that you couldn't get a fag paper between the two, the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Look at verse 14 with me. For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. The love Jesus has for us, that is our driving force. That's going to send us out. That's a powerful motive uh, for us. The love of Christ compels us to live for him and to speak to him. That means in whatever way we're able to do that, however weak and foolish that is. Not all of us are going to be Billy Grahams, um, but there, there are ways that God can use us to speak about the one who died for all. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, sent a telegram to 12 of the most uh, respectable people in London uh, as a joke one night. And the telegram simply said, flee, all is revealed. Six of the 12 men, within 24 hours, left the country. It's crazy, isn't it? It's a crazy thing. But there are dark pages on everyone's book. There's dark pages uh, that, that we wouldn't want anyone to read about us. And do you know what? God cares enough to have done something about it, which is wonderful, isn't it? We have wonderful news to tell people. So all of those kind of things that we've done that we're you know, proud of and you know, great are recorded, but also those things we wouldn't want anyone to see are recorded. And imagine that's you and this is the record of your life. It creates a barrier between us and God. Imagine God's the ceiling. You've probably seen this done before. And Jesus was the perfect man who never sinned, who never did anything wrong. He lived a perfect life. And this is a wonderful illustration of the cross, that as Jesus was on the cross and he died, he takes our place. He takes our sin off us and onto himself. And he dies for it. And he's buried in a tomb. And he's there for three days. And he comes out victorious. And now he offers us every promise that's written in this word to be ours. It's given to us. As Jesus dies to pay the price for us, we're given something in exchange. We're given his perfect life. 
So when God looks at us, what does God see? What does God see when he looks at you? Where's your sin? It's been dealt with. Isn't that amazing? God sees Jesus when he looks at you, the one who's taken your place, died uh, to take the punishment that we rightly deserve for rejecting him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear this coming year. And from this place, it compels us, the love of Christ for what he's done compels us to reach out and to speak for others. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer and theologian, put it like this. He said, unless our hearts are harder than iron, the remembrance of the great love Christ has shown us by submitting to death for our sakes is bound to make us devote ourselves entirely to him. Do you hear what Calvin's saying? Unless you've come in this morning with kind of a bulletproof vest, unless you've got Kevlar surrounding your heart this morning, when you think about the cross, when you think about what Jesus has done, the bloody love of Jesus shown on the cross, that's meant to stir us. That's meant to stir the soul so deeply that we can't but be devoted entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Can you, can you feel that? The motive of awe and fear, yeah, that's powerful, but it's the love of Christ that compels us, the boundless love of Christ. And so part of that does mean, actually, we do need to warn people uh, that if they continue to reject Jesus, that, that one day God will reject them. We need to warn people why the Savior came. He came to rescue them from hell, through the cross, for heaven ahead. Well, what a great love. Let's just kind of have a look at that. Verse 17. Well, firstly, if you're not a Christian here this morning, why don't you get right with God today? It's a great encouragement. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. What love shown by Jesus. Verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting our sins against them. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps you've been slipping for a while now. Perhaps you feel like you're at that stage where your fingernails are just about to kind of give way. Maybe you've lost your mojo for speaking about Jesus and living for Jesus. Here's a reminder, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The love of Christ compels you. You've been reconciled to God. You, you who are an enemy have been made a friend. Through the precious blood of Jesus, rejoice in what God has done for you. You've been given Jesus' perfect life. Isn't that wonderful? He died for you. It's a gift. Luke says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're here and you're not a Christian uh, this morning, just switch off for a moment. It's time for you to go to sleep. This is for the Christians amongst us. Uh, the Bible says God has trusted to you this ministry of reconciliation. You're Christ's ambassador wherever you go. You speak for him by your life and your lip together. Picture one, you're the lighthouse. You're the light of the world speaking for Christ. 
Sir Kim Derrick is Her Majesty's Ambassador to the United States of America. And he's got a privileged role, a diplomatic role. He has to make negotiations and organize treaties and terms and try and persuade people for the Queen. But just imagine um, if Sir Kim decided one day that he didn't want to go along with what, what kind of the plans were being kind of proposed, and he thought it was all nonsense, and he declared war on the United States of America. What would the Queen do? I mean, she'd probably take him, wouldn't she? And she'd lock him up in the Tower of London and cover him in man-eating spiders, wouldn't she? Or kind of something, you know, something else. I don't know what she'd do. Um, but you and I, we speak on behalf of the King of the Universe. Isn't that amazing? What a privilege we have. We've got to be authentic ambassadors for Jesus in how we live and what we say. Well, maybe you're sitting here and thinking, oh, this is a lot to take in, but Adam, you just don't know who I hang out with. You don't know how hard my friends are to reach with Jesus. I don't think anything I could ever say or however I lived could make a change. Well, flick back with me to Luke chapter 19. We meet an interesting man called Zacchaeus. You know the story. And here's my, here's my encouragement. From, from Luke 19, real ministry brings real change. It's the second point. Zacchaeus is a white-collar criminal, a little man with a big problem. He was the opposite of Robin Hood. He stole money off his own people and lined his own pockets. And one day Jesus comes to town and meets with Zacchaeus. He stops at the exact spot where Zacchaeus is and looks up a tree and calls Jesus down. Isn't that incredible? Jesus comes looking for this little scumbag or this big scumbag. Verse 7, all the people mutter under their breath at Jesus. He's gone to be the guest at Zacchaeus' house. What a sinner. He's gone there. Here's the point. If Jesus can reach the biggest scumbag in town or the littlest, I'm not sure it kind of confuses me there. If Jesus can reach Zacchaeus, and if Jesus can reach you and he can reach me, then he can reach anyone. Isn't that incredible? Jesus has come, the very last verse, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Our job, says Charles Spurgeon, is to introduce people to Jesus. The 19th century Baptist preacher put it like this. I don't know whether you see that lion out there. It's very distinctly before my eyes. A number of persons advance to attack it, while a host of us would defend the grand old monarch, the British lion, with all our strength. Many suggestions are made and much advice is offered. This we weapon's recommended and that weapon's recommended. Pardon me if I offer just a quiet suggestion. Open the door. Let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why? They're all gone. Open the door. Let the lion out. He'll take care of himself. Ask the question to your friend. Do you want to grab a coffee with me? Do you want to sit down and read the Bible? Let's have a think about who Jesus is. Ask the question. And, 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 let's, and let's be ready for people to say yes. Actually, if we do ask them, let's be ready for that. Uh, verse, verse 9 and 10. Uh, Today salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. See, we don't have to dress up the gospel. We don't have to force people into God's kingdom. We just need to introduce people to the King of Kings and speak plainly about him. Well, there's, there's my two motivations. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. What are you going to do with that? And there's my encouragement that no one is beyond the pale of Jesus reaching them. It's a huge encouragement. Let's let the lion out. Would you pray with me? Let's pray.
Lord God, thank you so much for your word to us. We pray that you'd help us to have ears to hear it rightly and put it into practice in our lives. Help us to be those um, who, who live out this good news where we are and speak boldly of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.